Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Associate Editor Greg Smith. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about The Little Things. The film recently hit HBO Max. People have had a chance to see it. And um, apparently, I think, you know, if it's funny, I think people are watching this film based on like what we've seen from our own traffic. Um, like obviously HBO isn't releasing their own metrics of how many people are watching, but I think it's safe to say that people are interested in it. Um, probably because it's, you know, on the surface, it's a, just a, it's a, it's a standard thriller starring reliable actors. Like it's Denzel Washington in a thriller, which is like, used to be a thing that you could just get in the nineties with films like the bone collector and fallen. But, um, you know, I think after, I think there's something comforting about the kind of movie it is that has drawn people to it. But I also think the film has some, some flaws and we're going to, we're going to dig into the strengths and weaknesses of the little things. Um, And Greg, you did a great piece recently on the site uh, about the film's editing. And I wanted, if you could just kind of explain a little bit, um, you know, before, actually, before you explain, in case you're tuning in and have not seen the little things, it's about Denzel Washington and, and uh, Rami Malek teaming up to, to catch a killer who could or could not be played by Jared Leto. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the overview of who is killing these women in LA. It might be Jared Leto. But uh, Greg, so what do you think about the, the editing of this film? What kind of stuck in your craw about it? Yeah, it's not very good. It's sort <laughs> of the general thesis. Um, it's a very... You know, they, a lot of people talk about like the the desire to be an invisible editor in filmmaking. You know, the best editing works if you don't notice it. I don't always subscribe to that theory. I think sometimes like a show offy edits, whether it's the fact that it's a long take or whether it's like Requiem for a Dream style mini montages can really help uh, whatever story the filmmaker is trying to tell. I just care that the editing and the cinematography and the general sequence construction has any sense of intention. I want to feel like the filmmakers decided to make this edit specifically for very specific reasons. The little things feels very unintentionally made. It feels very sloppily made. It feels like they covered every scene in exactly the same way. They just got like basic angles on either side of every conversation. And they just kind of like, chopped it and slopped it together in the cut just just to like power through the scenes kind of as like quickly as they could and all of the edits feel so discombobulating there's a lot of shifts from like extreme close-ups to big establishing wide shots for like half a second and then we cut back in there's continuity errors all over the place it just feels very nobody decided anything is sort of the vibe i got yeah, it is, it is kind of a weird film that sort of like, it's very, I think it almost kind of prides itself on how workmanlike it is, yeah. but on the, but, but to your point, I think you can be workmanlike and not flashy. And I think it's sort of caught between the two where it's sort of like, we need to sort of uh, be more aggressive and need to sort of keep the audience off balance, but also this is a procedural. And I don't think it ever really strikes that balance. Mm-mm. And I think the important thing about the word workmanlike is that, you know, workmen, let's say a plumber or a carpenter, have to decide 
very much every single piece of thing they have to do. And especially when you're making a procedural, like you said, uh, which, you know, I came into this movie with like, if you were to ask me my favorite genre of film, I would probably say 1990s Denzel Washington crime thrillers. I came in like just wanting a really sturdy piece of that type of film. And it's just flimsy. It just kind of falls apart. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. Uh, it's it's interesting because I also am just a massive fan of just like 90s thrillers, specifically like 90s legal thrillers. Like give me the Pelican Brief all day long. Yeah. <laughs> like movies like that. I'm like, yes. And there is a workmanlike quality to films like that. Uh, like The Firm, uh, you know, The Rainmaker obviously is Francis Ford Coppola, but he also made Jack. So, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Um, but like there's a there's some you come to like expect that you're going to be told a story in a sequence of events and it's going to draw you in as you get deeper into it. Uh, and on paper, the little thing should be absolutely my jam. And I actually don't think it's a bad script. And, and I know the script has been around for a long time. He wrote it in the early 90s and Steven Spielberg was briefly attached to direct it. And then he didn't want to do something that dark. And then, uh, you know, other directors kind of flirted with it and studios did, but they wanted to change the ending. They didn't want it to be that dark. Um, you know, now in 2021, it's not incredibly dark just because you see darker stuff like that on like CBS every night. Um, but it like as a story, like it could it could be very interesting or it could at the very least be very compelling. And for me, it was for a little bit at the beginning, but it, I agree with you, Greg, is that it, it feels um, like intentionless in terms of how the shots are constructed and how the sequences are constructed, even like how the story is being laid out to you. Um, Cause at the beginning you're, you know, it feels like it's doing that thing where it draws you in where you only know half the story and Denzel Washington's character has a secret and you're like, Oh, okay. But like the thing that kind of clicked it in for me was when they're investigating the first crime scene with Rami Malek and the camera's just like moving around everywhere. <laughs> and you're like, wait, where am I? Like you haven't established the geography of this scene yet. So I don't know where I am. And you're kind of pulling me out of the movie. And all of a sudden Denzel Washington's across the street, but you don't know if it's across the street or is it like next door maybe? I don't know for sure. <laughs> like it takes you a little bit to kind of get it. And then that all pulled me out of what I was supposed to be interested, interested in, which was, does this case have a connection to Denzel Washington's character in the past? And like, what's going on in this specific scene? And honestly, I think it's a fault of direction. And John Lee Hancock has directed some, you know, fine movies. And I think Workmanlike is a is a great descriptor and not a pejorative for, you know, what he does. I think Saving Mr. Banks is well-constructed, even if that film has issues, you know, as, as you know, a, a Disney-verified version of the truth. Um, but like The Rookie, like very solid movie. Uh, I have not seen The Highwaymen, which was made for Netflix, but it just feels like he kind of fumbled over his own script, directing his own script, which is just really disappointing. It's it's not even like I'm, I'm saying The Little Things is like the worst movie ever made or like a just a terrible, awful film. It's just very frustrating and disappointing. So the by the time you get to the end, which is kind of subverting a genre, you're like, oh, I don't really care anymore. Right, well, and the other thing is it's not a particularly ambitious film, which is like, that's the thing. If, if he had tripped on his own ambition, wherever he was like, was really making a big swing and it didn't pay off. So, you know, it, it's fine. It's happened. I'd, I'd rather a director take the chance and it doesn't pay off. But here it's, I mean, it's again, it's a nineties. This, this script came from the nineties. It's like yeah. a 30 year old script. Um, and instead of, you know, 
it's 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 a it's not a it, the film wants to play by the rules of the genre until it wants to subvert it right at the end. But until that point, it's very much like there's a killer who's killing these women. Denzel has a secret. Will the darkness swallow Rami Malek? You know, and it's just it's but it's it's very sort of basic. It's not trying to like really upend the genre until the end. And so those choices, it's it's not like, oh, well, he's, you know, the editing is this way because they're trying to keep you off kilter. It's like, no, it's it's kind of sloppy is what it is. And maybe that's a, you know, a product of trying to piece a, get a film together during a pandemic, perhaps, you know, this film I think was probably supposed to come out last year in better times. Um, not, not better times with 2020, but if without a pandemic, but I think, and look, I'm willing to sympathize if, you know, John Lee Hancock and his editor were having trouble cutting together a film over zoom, but it's at the end of the day, you know, you have to look at the final product and, and that product is a film that wants to sort of stand alongside your, your basic nineties thrillers. And instead I saw a lot of people on Twitter just being like, man, this really made me want to rewatch seven <laughs> because <laughs> seven is just much better. Yeah. It's like, it made me want to watch a good movie. Well, and you also, I think that comparison is super apt. Um, and I, I don't know it's unclear or maybe it is clear and I'm, and I'm just mistaken if this script was written, I think this script was written before seven came out, but the comparisons are, are really hard to dodge, but you look at just the construction of seven. And obviously, I mean, I, you know, David Fincher is on a level that's very hard to attain, but even you look at the, so I think like one of the quintessential scenes in seven is when they're driving out to the desert and they've got Kevin Spacey in the back and you look at the editing of that scene and it's holding on faces. It's holding on Kevin Spacey's face. It cuts at very deliberate moments to Brad Pitt or to Morgan Freeman. Um, and I remember in the audio commentary on that, Brad Pitt didn't feel like he got his performance right and Fincher didn't either. So he ADR the dialogue of that. You can't even tell. But that much of Brad Pitt's dialogue in that scene is is done after the fact because he didn't like kind of his inflection and stuff. But the camera is, it's steady and like kind of leading you along to hear John Doe speak and John Doe, you know, is seeming unrattled and tension is building because you're not quite sure, you know, this guy's turned himself in. You don't know where they're going exactly. You don't know what's going to be there, but you're also unsure, like, what is this guy's motivation? What is he doing? And you kind of get all of that without it being said in that one scene. Like you understand John Doe's behavior. You understand what is rattling him, like what actually is getting at him um, when Brad Pitt mentioned specific things. Um, but you do all that through like, steady shots and like lingering on the actors and i felt like with jared leto's performance on the little things like even in like the interrogation scenes i'm like why is the camera like all the way back i don't know i can't see their faces i don't know what's happening here i can't really get a firm grasp on like what you're trying to tell me about i spent half the movie wondering if it was trying to tell me if rami malik was the killer i don't even know if that was intentional or not i think it was like and i don't think rami malik gives a very good performance in this it's it's i think he's a little miscast um, cause it just, I don't know, some of his inflections and stuff, all well, of this think... to say, like you, the, the quick editing and things doesn't let you like, just sit down and appreciate the actors or the performances and the little things, the way that a film like seven does. Well, I think filmmaking is choices. I mean, if you look at, you know, just again, to compare to seven, seven is, is essentially trusting its audience and, and, and telling you a story with visual filmmaking. Uh, whereas, the little things, I mean, every single thing about Jared Leto's performance is overcooked in a way that just renders it comical. Like, I mean, we've, we, Adam, you and I have talked about how 
when like Jared Leto like first comes on screen and like he turns around and it's just like this like look on his face and you just can't help but laugh because I was alone in my living room and I just laughed like (laughs) I was just alone right and I don't think that's I I can say with some certainty that that's not what John Lee Hancock was going for in that moment it's supposed to be like this is the face of of a potential killer and the film is so invested in trying to get you it's like is Jared Leto guilty or is he just a weirdo and but it's not really having you guess it's much as just Jared Leto is like cranked to 11 and then the plot is not answering like there's no ambiguity in Leto's performance where it's just really the all the ambiguity comes from the plotting and I don't think that that makes for a compelling character and yet we are on a path now where Jared Leto might get an Oscar nomination for best supporting actor for the little things which is maddening (laughs) for having a snaggle tooth (laughs) <laughs> Bo Burnham's right there, guys. Aside from every other actor that, you know, yeah. is, could conceivably land in that race. It's funny that you brought up the seven scene where they're driving out to the desert because there is a similar scene with um, Rami Malek and Jared Leto driving out to that big old place where he digs a million holes. And it, I feel like Jared Leto is trying to make fun of himself and trying to make fun of this movie I feel like he is self-awarely being quote unquote funny. And <laughs> I think that's possible. There's like a little bit of a winking aspect to his performance. Yes. Even down to his walk where he's just like his weird, his weird walking. little gait. Yeah. And yeah, it's hard for me to track that, to understand it, to get any intention behind it other than like Jared Leto wanted to have fun that day. Because in that scene, we we just cut away from him the moment he's about to do anything or say anything to Rami Malek hunched over, shoveling away. And I never get a sense of... The movie never gives me the opportunity to decide for myself this ambiguity that it's trying to set up. I just get little flashes of Jared Leto being goofy, and then we cut away immediately, and then we cut right back, and I'm too busy being discombobulated just by the craft or lack thereof on display to have a feeling or an opinion on Jared Leto other than the kind of overblown you know you talked about this movie not really having ambition I think the closest it comes to ambition is having three Oscar winners in its like leading roles so ideally as a director when you get three Oscar winners in your leading roles you do want to like let them play let let Jared Leto make this choice and adapt your filmmaking around it let it work let Rami Malek and him share the same space for a bit and see if they can cook something together even if Malek is miscast which I tend to agree with it's just nobody really seems to trust each other on this film everyone's just kind of like doing their own thing yeah Denzel comes out looking good but he always does Right. No, I think you're right. I think everyone is kind of on their own wavelength. And it's to me that says that this film doesn't really have a vision Mm -hmm. beyond its twist ending. And I think, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, the the ambiguity in Leto's performance, there is no ambiguity, but the film wants there to be. And I was reminded watching it of uh, of Prisoners. Which, Let's give you know, a spoiler warning if we're going to are we going to go full on into the ending now? No, not yet. I want to okay. talk a little bit about we I'll give the spoiler learning, but the ambiguity I, of like I just rewatched prisoners actually. But like doesn't like Paul Dano like have that ambiguity? Like yeah. like the film wants you to be like, is he guilty or are these people doing bad things? 
things. Yeah. And like that's the that it to me is a good dramatic crux of a film. Uh, and I think that's honestly kind of what the little things also wants to go for. But because he's just letting his actors kind of like, like because he's not telling Jared Leto, hey, dial it down a few notches. <laughs> the film is kind of at the mercy of this overdone performance. And I think one of Leto's greatest weaknesses as an actor is he is someone who very much wants to let you know that he is acting. Mm -hmm. um, if he is not letting you know that he's acting, is it really acting? Which is funny because I think his better performances are stuff like that's low key, like... Um, uh, his uh, breakthrough role in uh, My So-Called Life or or even something that's a little comical like in Panic Room, you know? And He's Panic very Room, good in Panic Room. Panic Room, that's a, <laughs> that's, that's a day where David Fincher is going to make you do that take 90 times, but he's giving a good performance is sort of this spoiled kind of uh, kid uh, trying to, to pull off this heist. And it's a really good performance. But, you know, ever since he won his Oscar and even before that with films like... Um, uh, the the one where he played the killer of John Lennon, um, like any oh chapter twenty seven, chapter mm. twenty seven, yeah. But like, there's that, and where he then got gout from gaining and losing. Yes, because gaining so much weight. But you look, look at something like Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and it's just I'm going to talk in this. Like, it's just I'm very much letting you know that I am giving a performance, and I think that continues here. And I, I think you need a director who's going to tell him dial it back a little which on the but on the flip side i will say i'm i'm legitimately excited to see him in the snyder cut as, 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 a, <laughs> as a new take on the joker because i think it will be so overdone because he's now seen joaquin phoenix win an oscar for <laughs> joker and he's like "Ooh, i gotta get me some of that well, if there's a director we can trust to like play a scene really grounded and emotionally driven <laughs> and to like find the core of his characters, it's it's Zachary Snyder. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned the like the trio of Oscar winning performances. It reminds me of uh, not to like make this a Kevin Spacey fan podcast. Kevin Spacey is a garbage human being. I want that in like flash. Great actor, works. garbage person. Um, but Baby Driver, you've got. J like I remember Edgar Wright talking about having like a two Oscar shot mm -hmm. where you had Jamie Foxx and Kevin Spacey in the same shot but you could like and you could even see in that movie where Jamie Foxx may be pitching bats a little crazy or like a little bit too far to the edge but you can feel that like there's a specific reason for each of those scenes and Edgar Wright is pitching that tone correctly um, when he's got those actors and I think that's to say you know uh, actors who win Oscars are not always just great without any help like they need direction they need someone to kind of hone in on it oh that every <laughs> every actor craves direction every yeah. actor the moment someone calls cut all they want is to be told what to do correctly all actors just crave well, approval well and it's a collaborative art form that's the thing like i think there yeah i think there are probably times where an actor's like i have a very strong take on this character and i want to go for it but at that point it's up to the director to say okay either that works and you've really surprised me or my vision for the film is, is going in a different way. And I need you to be like this, like Adam and I, on our previous episode, we we're talking with, with Mark Harris about, about Mike Nichols and Mike that, Nichols. Like the, about directing actors. And it really opened my eyes about like, what does it mean to direct actors? And we, we, I think we make the mistake of not doing actors essentially as their own department. Like we think of like the costume department and the set design department and like that director goes and says, I want it more like this or less like that. But actors are their own department and they their performances need to be calibrated. And I think, you know, if you have a guy like Denzel, who's just like one of the all time greats, he can kind of do whatever. 
you know, like that's the thing, that's the sort of the magic of Denzel. And I watching him in this movie, I, I was struck again, like how much we just take him for granted. Like he's like in that rare category of actors who have been so good for so long. We just sort of like, yeah, they're just great in everything. And it's just, we just kind of accept it. Um, but then you get down to like Rami Malek, who I, I think is so miscast because I think, I don't think, you know, so I saw somebody was like, is, is Rami Malek a bad actor? And it's like, I don't know if he's a bad actor. I think he's bad in this role because this role is essentially an everyman character. And Rami Malek is not an everyman kind of actor. That's why he was good in Mr. Robot. That's why he's good in, uh, like the first time he came on my radar was in uh, in the Pacific. And he plays a sort of- Larry Crown. No, so I'm before Hanks. Larry Crown, the Pacific man, and he plays this really broken. Was there soldier. a time before Larry Crown? We've <laughs> all asked. ALC after Larry Crown. <laughs> all, everything delineated that way, but like I think, and I think if like you know, in a minor role, he can play an everyman, kind of like in Short Term Twelve. But yeah. you know, I would say here he's just, especially in a film that's like, who's the killer? You know, like Adam, like you were saying, like, are are we supposed to think Rami Malek is the killer? Because I think that sort of undermines the entire investigation if you're always looking at him askance. Well, that and that speaks to, I think, Adam, you brought this up of like the script on paper being promising. I he's like, you know, to cast it back to seven. He's the Brad Pitt of, of the movie. He's sort of the everyman, the kind of like idealistic young front facing. He loves being in front of reporters, kind of cop who's like, we can make the world a better place. Denzel is like, don't go down my path. And he's always tempted by that. From moment one of Rami Malek on screen talking to those reporters, I'm like, or no, the first moment is him like, you parked me in and I'm mad at you, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a weird way to introduce that character. And I'm immediately like, oh, this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> this I was guy's like, a this weirdo. Guy's, this guy's up to no good. Because he's just this... sitting there with his shades on. Just like, mm. doing and a weird, given, yeah. And he's leering during the press conference. And I'm like, it does he think Denzel knows he did something bad? Like, what does this mean? So and with then there's that... a scene where he's like giving Denzel guff, uh, you know, and it should come off as like ribbing of like, you know, Brad Pitt like playfully ribbing uh Morgan Freeman. Um, but it comes off as like, does he hate him? Does he want to kill him and bury him in his basement? And so because we start from does he want to kill Denzel Washington, there's no arc for him to go on. I want like him to start idealistic and slowly get corrupted and corrupted and corrupted but he's already there and he kind of plays every scene at that same pitch i think something weird we're gonna see this year um especially this year is movies that didn't have test screenings because i feel like <laughs> yeah good point like the little things is a film where like the questions we're bringing up are stuff that's usually kind of gets addressed in test screens like i thought Rami Malek was bad because this or this. And then they go back in the editing room. It's like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't start here. Maybe we should do this or this and tweak and nudge it a little bit. And like, you're just not going to get that this year. Like there's no way to test screen movies because we're not going to put people into a theater. They're certainly not going to do that in Los Angeles where they typically do those screenings. And they're not going to put, give just ran screen, you know, screeners to randos that could be pirated. So like, they're just sort of the film is the film at this point. And I think, you know, on the one, I think test screens can be a little too heavily used um, to sort of drown out a filmmaker's visions, but other times they can be helpful to be like, okay, the reaction you were going for, you didn't get. Um, and I think 
the little things is maybe a test case in that. I don't want to say on mic how I know this, but I do know that the little things was uh, apparently screened for a collection of filmmakers, craftspeople, okay, then critics. I... But but that's I... not a that's not a public. But yeah, Correct. I agree. With, uh, yeah, but yeah, I think that's what filmmakers are having to rely on now because i mean even edgar wright said like he sent the sparks brothers documentary to cameron crow that was his first like can you look at this and tell me if i did a good job um but yeah like... they're not able to just go to a mall in suburbia and just be like hey do you want to see a movie i do feel like filmmakers have been doing that for a while i seem to remember like i want to say on the clerks two special features there's some featurette where Kevin Smith shows it to Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, and they talk I remember about that. Like, yeah, but yes, the random mall in Poughkeepsie or whatever—that's who this movie is like custom made for. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I needed some of that, just basic, basic, basic storytelling finesse. Right. So you know, and I feel like it's just that's the thing about the little the little things it's that it feels like it's close to maybe working and then but it just it's always going off the rails a bit um all right now at this point we should probably get into spoiler talk because there's sort of, there's the ending of it all um so if you haven't seen the film stop listening and then if you see the film come on back um so the ending of the film is that Jared Leto lures Rami Malek into a field and is like, if you want to find this missing girl, you got to dig. And so Rami Malek starts digging holes. And he's like, ah, I think he buried over there. He digs another hole. And he's just like, basically, he's, <laughs> he's taking trolling a, him. He's trolling him. And we, again, we don't, and, and we don't know why if he's trolling him because he's the killer or if he's mentally ill. And the film never answers it because instead, Rami Malek kills Jared Leto with a shovel. And then Denzel shows up. He's like, I'm going to show you how to cover up a crime because <laughs> I covered up a crime 20 years ago or five years ago. And then like, we learned that like, that's Denzel's secret is that he accidentally shot a woman um, and he covered it up. Um, and I, and I get like what, what the story is going for is like these two guys have been so consumed with needing to know the answer that the tragedy is they've now fallen prey to being to becoming sort of criminals. But I don't think it's tragic in the way that Hancock does. I think it's despicable because we live in an age where cops routinely get away with murder <laughs> and they were routinely getting away with bad behavior when he wrote this script. Okay, like the, in, the film takes place in October 1990 and five months later is the Rodney King beating. So this notion that like cops are just misunderstood, but they genuinely have like good intentions. I feel like that's sweet, but that's not reflective of any reality. And the fact that you've geared your ending towards how like they covered up this crime, but feel bad about it. But like, we all, we all need answers. Like, it's just, it, it feels very tone deaf to me. That's yeah, when I, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Um, it didn't, to me, and maybe I'm giving it too much credit, it didn't feel like the film was endorsing them or saying, like, they did what they had to do, so to speak. To me, I actually kind of, uh, again, I like this script on a certain level. I kind of dug this ending. Um, I like a neo-noir thriller that is like, even our detectives are fucking morally corrupt. 
I like the theme, the idea of just obsession overtaking you to the point where we have to lie to ourselves to just go to sleep at night. I like the kind of bittersweet irony of technically Denzel has saved Rami Malek's conscience, but at the same time has corrupted it in the most severe way possible. And he'll never know that like all kind of sings to me as a, an effective example of this genre. You brought up Jared Leto's motivation. The film kind of tries to get at the idea that he's just a guy who's obsessed with crime and procedure. Just a true crime buff, man. Just a true crime buff. He just, <laughs> he's a murderino. <laughs> but again, because we never really like, I don't know. There's a potential dovetailing of his obsession with Rami Malek's obsession in that hig, in that whole digging scene, that it just never has the patience to quite get to. But again, I, I, it, it just kind of boils down to again on paper thematically. I dig theoretically what it's putting down, and it just kind of biffs the execution. Yeah, that scene goes just from zero to murder very quickly. <laughs> You're just like, what? Okay. Well, I guess I saw this coming, but yeah, I don't know. The ending hit me like I, I, I kind of agree with Greg in that, like, I kind of appreciated the tragedy of like they'll never know, and now Rami's been fully corrupted. But I also like it felt like it was rushed. But it also, to me, most of the film felt like to me as it as if it was lauding these people as like very good men doing good things. Um, so for them to like be covering up two murders, it's showing like. Because when I first I I told my fiance the ending, she was like, "Well, maybe the film was trying to say that like not everyone is all good or all bad, and everyone's a little mix of both." I was like, "Oh, no." The vibe I got was that these are both very good men who are just trying to protect people, because um, they both have wives and they both have daughters, and they're gonna get men who were abusive to women and all this stuff, and kind of brushed aside a little bit of uh, doing the murders and covering that up. Well, and um, I also oh go ahead. I I mean. That's basically it. I, I was just kind of like, huh. I was like, well, that made me think, but that's a little icky. I was like, well, what a bummer. And then I moved on with my life. Well, I also think it falls victim to its casting choices because, or the performance choices, because if you're going to be like Rami Malek has been corrupted, well, then he can't be like sort of a creepy weirdo for most of the film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if it's- Yeah, there is no arc. As Greg said before, like the arc is ruined because that would have been a good arc if you just see this guy kind of like Brad Pitt, like Brad Pitt really mm-hmm. kind of just destructs in the final scene. Well, I think you need someone who, I think that role really would have benefited from someone who has the outward appearance of being upstanding, but kind of harbors a little darkness. Exactly. That you can kind of see like, like, a, like imagine someone like Patrick Wilson in that role. And I know Patrick Wilson doesn't have an Oscar, but think about how good he would have been as sort of like this sort of moral upstanding guy, but you can see he can go to a darker place. I think that would have really paid off by the same token. The fact that Leto is pitched at 11, there's no real, like you're never, it's so cartoony. Every element of his performance is so cartoonish that you're not buying him for a second as a mentally ill individual. If you bought him as a real person suffering from real mental illness, there would be like a real shock of pathos there. It's like, did you just kill someone who was mentally ill and didn't know right from wrong and was not guilty of these crimes, but because you're judging them based on their illness, you've done a horrible thing. But it's, he's it's this- car- pris- It's the prisoner's move. It's again. the prisoner's, exactly. And that's the thing, but by virtue of this film coming out of the 90s and not seemingly been updated at all, 
it pales in comparison to so many films that do it better, like Seven, like Prisoners, or, you know, speaking to your point about obsession, uh, Zodiac or Memories of Murder. So, you know, the, it, there are films that have done what The Little Things is doing, but doing it far better. Yeah, you brought up a really good point that it doesn't seem to have taken any... It seems to have existed in a vacuum. It doesn't, it hasn't taken any of those films, any of what the crime genre has done, any of what society's perception of crime fiction of the police in the real world have done. I'll throw another Bong Joon-ho movie on their mother, another great film about obsession and covering up the truth and shit like that. But while the film, uh, I will grant you that the film is guilty of like not being particularly connected to society contemporary society or filmmaking or cinema I guess I came from it as myself connected to society and so I was able to look at Denzel and Rami and go yeah they're both bad and I felt very comfortable not seeing them as heroes kind of from the jump I mean we see Denzel go on his like regret apology tour and we see everyone around him kind of be like wow i can't believe you're back you asshole <laughs> I, I felt sort of comfortable like just and again i feel like it's appropriate to the genre and a little appropriate to what we want out of crime stories these days i felt comfortable with everyone kind of being or i guess i should say with denzel being a borderline villain-esque anti-hero I would have liked Rami to, like you say, surface level been like kind of hunky dory with darkness underneath. But I, 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 to me, I didn't walk away from it going, this movie is like copaganda. You know, mm. I was comfortable being like, this movie is very critical of the horrible things the police do in the name of quote unquote the law. Denzel, when Denzel showed back up, it was kind of like, you son of a bitch, but it was like, you son of a bitch. It wasn't like, oh, you so-and-so, you're back. <laughs> it was like, you son of a bitch, you get the hell out. <laughs> I don't know. I just felt that like the way the film ends, it seems rather at peace with sort of the actions these men have done. Like, you know, he's sitting, you know, Rami Malek's sitting by his pool, but he's got the bread and he's going to, he's going to lie to himself and be like, you know what? We got him. I'm going to live with this lie. And then Denzel's like, I got him. And like, he throws the other barrettes at the fire and he like walks to his house and then we pull back. And he finally reconnects shot. with his dog. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. He reconnects, like, but like he goes back into his home, like domesticity, the home front has been restored. This is the equilibrium that we, that we have. And, you know, again, in a better film, maybe that moment sits a little uneasy. Yeah. If, if the Jared Leto character is not a cartoon but it's like when jared leto gets killed by a shovel it's kind of funny and like here's a guy who will be missed by no one the end <laughs> I, and it's, sorry go ahead Greg. no sorry i just wanted to piggyback on that part of that moment i remember this very viscerally the score in these final moments is like sentimental mm -hmm. forrest gump like uh -huh. treacle so yeah you're right that does kind of give a if it is, if it does have an intention, it is like, yep, everything's fine now. Whereas if you put just a little bit of edge or menace in that score, mm -hmm. if there's a moment where Denzel like sits down to reconnect with his dog and like has to swallow something behind him, you know, but it is presented very peachy keen. That's true. 
which is kind of the ending of like, you know, like the firm or the Pelican brief, like, you know, shit happened, but it's kind of like, things are going to be okay. And you're cool with it. Cause like you've been through a journey and like some bad things happen and not everyone got away with it, but um, you know, the good guys won in the end, but yeah, I think, I think that just toes a, a really tough tonal line that it just doesn't know how to handle. I also don't think Jared Leto did the murders. Am I the only one who thinks that? No, he didn't. Yeah, there's no evidence. There's no, there's literally no hard evidence to connect him to the murders. Because <laughs> I was just like, he's just a weirdo. Like, yeah, he's, he's just, a weird guy. He's just a weirdo. And he I will say that to, cry. to bring it back to if this person existed in real life, he'd have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, he just, <laughs> yes. he wouldn't be such a weird, like, I'm going to go bother the police for a while in yes. the middle of the night. <laughs> He'd funnel it out, you know, he'd write his own crime thriller. That would be better than the little things. Yeah. He'd have a Twitter handle that said associate producer of the Snyder Cut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> maybe we should move into Recently Watched. Um, Greg, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Yeah, I just finished up, I plowed through it. Uh, if you want a good crime thriller that's streaming, I highly recommend the first part of Netflix's Lupin, which is a French heist thriller series. There are five episodes of it currently on Netflix, and I believe they're dropping the other five this summer. Uh, Omar Sy is so charismatic and so fun and watchable in the series, but he's also very vulnerable and like full of pathos and full of dramatic irony. The heist sequences are so well done. There's a lot of really good like hand-to-hand combat. And there's like a really nice, complicated, loving story about fathers and sons, about race and class. It, I, I loved it. I can't wait for the last five. It's really good watching. Highly recommend. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about that show. And uh, Louis Letelier has directed at least three of them and his direction is just like the director of clash of the titans 3d my favorite film of all time the director of the incredible hulk <laughs> my second favorite film. Of all time. he's an interesting filmmaker because he's one of those that like came up at a time where it was like you who like won the palm d'Or or whatever like go and do this big franchise over here or like more like lower key like foreign cinema and stuff uh, yes i think he was just like threw thrown into the deep end because he also did the dark crystal series for netflix right uh he did yeah, and he his first film I just looked it up. A uh, personal, an actual favorite of mine, Jet Li's Unleashed. Mm. Jet Li and I want to say Bob Hoskins. Yes, and Morgan, and Morgan Freeman. And right? Morgan Freeman, underrated, <laughs> weird, like story of. It was originally called Danny the Dog, I think. Yeah, because he treats him like a literal dog. Yeah, weird dark movie. <laughs> uh, Lupin and Unleashed. <laughs> uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? So I finally, at long last, watched the first episode of one of the most popular television shows currently running, Yellowstone. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a show that seems like everyone watches, but no one on the Collider staff has seen. Um, I assume Liz has seen a couple of episodes. Uh, She's seen everything. Yeah. But Sam and I were curious. uh, And we're like, let's check this out. It's like an hour and a half pilot written and directed by Taylor Sheridan. And it opens with Kevin Costner shooting a horse in the face. 
<laughs> so if you're wondering if it's a Taylor Sheridan joint, it is absolutely a Taylor Sheridan joint. But later on, you learned that 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 horse was a sex offender. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then exactly. in the scene after that, uh, the main that Kevin Costner opened up, it was revealed someone just bought it at a main store. It wasn't yeah. a real main. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So it opens like super intensely. Like there's like a car crash, and the horse has like like shrapnel in its chest, and so sure. he's like putting it away and i was like oh i don't know if i want to watch this and then an hour and a half later we were like you know what we'll probably watch this whole thing like it's yeah. just it's just kevin costner and land disputes in montana and there's some murder and there's some intrigue like it's kind of like a soap but like a taylor sheridan version of a soap like west bentley is very good in it kelly riley is very good in it like it's just very solid like i was i was watching this i was like this is bad, but I want to watch it. Like if that makes any sense. <laughs> is it sort like, of like I Ozark? Because it sounds uh, like Ozark. it's not as it's not as severe as Ozark because it's okay. got it's more because it genuinely I like I found it genuinely interesting that like this guy you know his family has owned all of this land in Montana for ages and there's like disputes with the like the Native American reservation that's nearby and you know they steal the cattle and like it sounds so stupid but it does, like, it does sound stupid. <laughs> But it's very interesting. And, you know, as is Taylor Sheridan's uh, thing, there are the Native American char characters are pegged as antagonists, but there are also sympathetic Native American, uh, Native American characters. So I'm curious to see where that goes. Because Wind very, River is. Yeah. It's very strange to me that that Taylor Sheridan has, be, like, who is a white guy, is like, I'm going to tell stories about Native Americans yeah. in all my work. Well, I don't, I can't, I think he's from Texas. So it's, well, he lived even... and he lived on a reservation for a while. Okay. Okay. So. Did what was that Jeremy Renner movie? Wind River. Wind River. Yeah. God, I hated that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and I saw it at Sunday. It said it ended and it was that like, ooh, that score. And everyone was like, hmm. <laughs> All right, let's go. Yeah. Is Yellowstone as misanthropic as that film is? No, because as I said, like, it's got these, like, you know, um, I don't want to say like Game of Thrones, but like the machinations of like, you know, he's friendly with the governor, but then there's, you know, a state senator who's in with the Native American, the new, like the new chief of the Native American tribe is trying to like show his must. And so that's creating a power struggle over, and like Montana has like no cities. So the problem is like, you know, oh, and then the, like Danny Houston is like this land developer who wants to build big, beautiful condos. And Kevin Costner's like, not in Montana, like keep it big sky country. And so it's just like stuff like that. And again, it sounds dumb, but you're watching it and you're like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of invested in this. No, I, I, I see the appeal in all yeah. of this. <laughs> so it's all, it's on Peacock uh, is where you can stream it. And uh, I will probably watch the rest of it, but it has that, you know, it has that severity that like Sicario and Hell or High Water have, but it's like more palatable because it's for network television a bit. Mm -hmm. Although there's like a net bomber too. So yeah. I don't, I don't know necessarily. But... It was originally oh, it was originally on Paramount the Par Network. It was originally on yeah. Paramount Network, which yeah, was originally Spike. Yes. Um, <laughs> originally TNN. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but like Gil Birmingham's in it. Like it's got a good cast and and it looks pretty. Like it's kind of I can also see the like uh, maybe like wish fulfillment appeal of like oh yes if I was rich and had a bunch of land it would be nice to just ride my horse through the country. It's good to have land. <laughs> it's good to have land. Yeah. So Yellowstone. Yeah. It turns out I understand why people really like it. All right. Good to know. Uh, so for my recently watched, my wife and I recently rewatched uh, Dangerous Liaisons because uh, we were in the mood. So what had happened was, is 
both Dangerous Liaisons and then this other film called Valmont are both adapted from the source material this Liaisons Dangerous or however it's I don't, I don't speak dangerous. from I don't know how to say French. Avec Louis Letelier. Uh, there we go. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, these two films kind of raced to the screen. Um, and Valmont is not very good, even though it's directed by Milos Forman and it has it stars uh, Colin Firth, a very young Colin Firth, uh, and Annette Benning. Um, but the, ba- the, the, the clearly superior film is Stephen Freer's Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, and the plot of the film is that it takes place in, I think it's 18th century France. Um, but basically, uh, John Malkovich plays uh, Valmont, who is this sort of Lothario who can basically bed any woman he wants. Uh, and But he has this sort of rivalry slash friendship um, with uh, a woman, um, I'm going to butcher all these names the marquis isabelle de mitriel uh played by glenn close uh and she like wants that lou dobbs clip where lou dobbs is trying to pronounce i know this is <laughs> going horribly <laughs> anyway i'm just going to use the actor names so uh, no i'm kidding no he wants he wants her so glenn close wants john malkovich to to bed this virginal young woman uh played by uma thurman because it will humiliate her uh glenn close's ex-lover but at the same time, John Malkovich is also trying to pursue this very sort of um, religious, um, pristine, uh, sort of honorable woman uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And it's just, it's such a delightfully nasty piece of work, uh, if you've never seen it. Uh, the performances are incredible. Like this, this cast is amazing. Um, even like Keanu Reeves in a period role, like it, he's good in this. Like he has to play kind of dumb and innocent at which he is very good at doing in 1989. Um, or 1988 when this film came out. Um, but the whole film is just really good. It's a gorgeous costume drama with excellent performances. Uh, it's immensely entertaining. If you want to get it, I would recommend uh, not going to Amazon because it, it, the Blu-ray is kind of out of print, except it's a Warner Brothers film. So if you go to Warner Archive, then you can just buy it for 20 bucks. Um, so Warner Archive. Is it on HBO Max if it's Warner Brothers or no? It's not. It's not oh. streaming anywhere, which is surprising. Um, it's not streaming at the moment that we are recording this. It might pop up on a streaming service at a later date. Um, but uh, it's a great film. Uh, and if you, so if you haven't seen it, I, I strongly recommend Dangerous Liaisons. Um, all right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, well, thank you, you want, for having me. What a joy. Yes. If you want to keep up with this podcast, uh, you should follow us on Twitter. Greg, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm at Smith L. Greg on Twitter and Instagram. And Adam, where can people find you? Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.